Do you manage your own IT for distributed teams in Asia? You know how painful it is. Asseval helps your in-house team by taking tough tasks off their hands and giving them the tools to manage IT effectively. Get help across eight countries in Asia-Pacific, which includes onboarding, procurement, device management, real-time IT support, offboarding, and more. Gain full control of all your IT infrastructure in one place with our state-of-the-art platform. Check out Esevel, E-S-E-V-E-L.com and get a demo today. Use our referral code BRAVE for three months free. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to BRAVE. Be inspired by the best leaders of Southeast Asia tech. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. I'm Jeremy Au, a VC, founder, and father. Mondays for no BS commentary on the latest startup news with Shri and Co, managing partner of Hustle Fund. Thursdays for in-depth interviews of changemakers across the region, sharing about the highs and lows of their lives. Join us and over 10,000 subscribers at www.bravesea.com for transcripts, analysis, and community. Hey, Sabrina, really excited to have you on the show to discuss about mental health and more importantly, about building a company that's solving this issue. Please introduce yourself. So I am, yeah, I'm Sabrina. I am the CEO and co-founder of Calm Collective Asia, where we are normalizing mental health conversations in Asia. So what we do is that we are working with a community where we educate the community at large around mental health. We also have peer support programs as well as provide training for facilitators who would like to support their own communities. We are also in the corporate space where we've brought these programs and trainings into companies like Spotify, The Body Shop, typically MNCs right now. So we're also normalizing conversations around mental health at work. So that's what we do. And besides that, about me, before I started Calm Collective in 2020, I was also in the software industry, um, start some startups, and I was also a marketer and DJ, professional DJ. How did you... <laughs> get engaged and be interested in mental health and wellness as a category and topic? This whole interest in mental health came from my own personal journey. So I am someone who has bipolar disorder. So kind of going through that journey of struggling through it before I got diagnosed, being arrested for a suicide attempt along the way, and also actually losing two friends to a suicide and finally coming out of that like just survival mode and just horrible challenging period of my life and learning how to manage and thrive with it. I think that personal journey has given me a lot of learnings and insights around mental health from the stigma that we face to just a lot of things that we don't know about mental health. So my personal journey as well as the learnings gave me that motivation to bring what I've learned to more people so that more people can seek help for their mental health before it's too late. I mean, I think people today, I think, are pretty aware of what depression is like, right? Which people call it grieving or really sad, can't get a bit. So I think that's relatively clear about bipolar. It's newer in the awareness in Southeast Asia. Could you share a little bit more what it like to live with bipolar? Yeah, sure. So bipolar disorder, I mean, I, I think it's been there 
forever. I mean, I'm not sure. I haven't lived forever, so I don't know. I, I think the starting point to understanding bipolar is, what bipolar disorder is that bipolar can look quite different for everyone, right? So anxiety, depression, it can also manifest differently for each person going through it. So for me, my bipolar disorder looks like, well, okay, so maybe just starting with what bipolar disorder is about. So bipolar disorder is basically manic depression. That was a phrase that they used to use. And if you think about depression as a unipolar depression or one pole, bipolar means that there's some of that as well, the depression, but there's also the highs of mania. And what mania can look like can, at least for me, it kind of showed itself as nights where I did not get any sleep. I would be very excited. I would start 10, 20 new projects and probably not finish any of them. I would also be very sociable and outgoing. I'll be the life of the party. Also, mania is quite interesting because at, when you're there, you can feel very energetic and sociable. But at the same time, you can be very irritable and quick to piss people off. You can be a total asshole as well. And mania can be varying degrees of what that looks like for the individual. But that was what it was like for me. I would have like two hours of sleep a night and I would yeah, just get very creative and start so many things. <laughs> so you get some of that mania or hypomania in its lesser form. And then depression is also there. So for me, my depressive episodes used to be like two to four months at a go. These days with medication, it's very different. It's a lot more muted, I would say. So I still have those bursts of energy, but my medication brings that mood down. I'm on a mood stabilizer. And once in a while, I can feel depressed. But I think at this point, living with bipolar disorder is a lot more manageable. I've got a lot more support systems to help me take care of myself better. Yeah, I was and more listening to Burn Rate by Andy Dunn, which is the CEO of Bonobos. And he was talking about how he mm -hmm. was struggling with his initial potential diagnosis of bipolar disorder, how he rejected it, how he borrowed it, and how he eventually caused him to land up in jail and crashing his company's like social media reputation. Uh, yeah, yeah, because he exactly. assaulted yeah. random people in the street. Um, yeah. Yes, so a psychosis so, yeah, can I mean, be a part of it And it, it was well, just yes. kind of interesting. And he was like describing how it was like a great founder disease to have because... Whenever he had mania, he was like crushing it in life, right? Yeah, I am like best person in the world <laughs> to solve this difficult problem. Yeah, exactly. Am, so he was I'm saying like, yeah, mania one. was really good because <laughs> yeah. it helped him uh, yeah. never say, take no for an answer. Like you said, hustle hard, push harder. It's interesting, right? Because like all these characteristics of mania are characteristics that you would want the ideal entrepreneur to have. But taken to the extreme, it can be extremely unsustainable as well. I talked to someone who had bipolar 1 and he done, right? And that's characterized by higher manias. One of the things I found out was that a lot of people with undiagnosed bipolar disorder, especially bipolar 1, they end up in jail a lot. They end up as entrepreneurs, they're a lot more risk-taking. So yeah, a lot of the time, it's a very difficult illness to diagnose. So initially, I was misdiagnosed with only depression. Because why would I bring myself to a psychiatrist when I'm high? I'm perfect. I'm fine. What was it like getting diagnosed and what brought you there? What was the dynamics there? So I was first diagnosed with major depression. I went to the psychiatrist twice while I was depressed because I was at that point suicidal. I couldn't get out of bed. It was just 
I couldn't function, right? So obviously there's something wrong with me. So after a couple of rounds of major depression, I actually realized looking back that every time I had a depression or depressive phase, I would go into a high high. Like the lower I went, the higher I would go after that. And yeah, I just noticed that it was, something was off. It, it didn't seem quite right to pick up like that just after a depressive episode. So then I did some Googling. So thanks, Google. Now I could probably rely on ChatGPT or something. But basically, I discovered that there was a thing called bipolar disorder and I brought this to my psychiatrist. So I charted my moods ups and downs and I just said, hey, doc, this is, am I bipolar? Do I have bipolar? And even at that point, the doctor was still unsure about diagnosing me because he never saw me that high, right? He never saw me in a manic state. So obviously, I wouldn't go see him like that. What happened after I did my homework and presented like this whole chart was that he said, okay, let's try putting you on mood stabilizers because yeah, it does seem that based on the characteristics that you share or the behaviors that you share, it sounds like it could be bipolar disorder. So after giving me the mood stabilizers, we actually saw that my mood stabilized <laughs> or evened out after every depressive phase. So yeah, and that was it. I think that's interesting because I'm wondering, does it interact with your job as a DJ? I mean, was it like, how did that interact, I guess, with that lifestyle? Yeah. When I think of a DJ, I think super popular yeah. person, also popping bottles, everyone's like life of the party. And then how does that interact? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. As you're saying that, I'm like, wow, <laughs> PTSD. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, popping bottles and like spilling it all. <laughs> Such a waste. And so DJing was not conducive to bipolar. And I think the DJing, the late nights, that exposure to extreme behaviors from the people around me definitely fueled the mania I would experience as well as... It also fueled the depression because when I was depressed, I would be like... What's this all? What's all of this for? Why are people bo like popping bottles around me? Are they really happy? I'd be asking all these existential questions. <laughs> What's the point of all of this? The DJing definitely contributed to making my mental health worse to the extent that the environment around me was not helpful. The late nights I was sleeping at, I don't know, 5, 6 a.m. every night whenever I DJed. And sleep is a known factor to influence our mental well-being. Now I get eight hours of sleep routinely every night. It's completely different. And the environment playing in like nightclubs was not great because I'm surrounded by maybe other people who also have mania. You're just going to add fuel to the fire. It's just not great. But DJing itself, the act of DJing, I think it's fine. I, I still do that once in a while when it's an early set or for myself. But I would say nightlife was not very conducive to mental health. Yeah, it makes sense. And now you only accept gigs before midnight. It's true. It's actually my, my bed is calling. And so what's interesting <laughs> yeah. is it's one thing, obviously, to manage your bipolar disorder after being diagnosed and obviously adjusting a lifestyle to have that better set of conditions. And then what's interesting is that there you are also working in the startup industry as well, right? And at some point you say, actually, I want to make this calm collective, right? You want to work on it. You want to found something to tackle this issue. So what was that transition point from living with it yeah. yourself to building it for others? So I think the starting point for me, or what kind of seeded this idea behind Calm Collective was 
it's not just for myself, but also the fact that I, I lost two close friends to suicide. Of course, after they killed themselves, I asked myself, like, what could I have done to prevent this? And it all went back to stigma and them not feeling comfortable enough to seek help, to talk about it. I, I think since they passed away in 2015 and 2017, that had, I, I've had this motivation just sitting there behind the scenes. But what gave me, I guess, the impetus to start Calm Collective, the short story was during the lockdown in 2020, mental health services in Singapore were considered non-essential. So that just made me very pissed off because I couldn't see my therapist, I couldn't see my psychiatrist, or not supposed to. So at that point, I knew how the lockdown was going to affect me and, you know, what more other people who were, who were struggling even more. Starting Calm Collective was something I did on the side of my job back then. I say I was a customer success manager for a software startup, so I could work from home. Obviously, I had more time. I could work during my lunch breaks, after work. So I think the combination of like just being pissed off and having more time allowed us to give birth to Calm Collective. But of course, I guess making the move to, I guess, full-time founder was really because of a couple of other factors. So the move from Calm Collective as a side project to full-time founder was due to two factors. So one, we actually won a grant from the National Youth Council and also the UNDP. So the grant actually gave us some seed. Well, not really seed, right? It gave us some money to help cover my cost if I were to go into doing this full-time. And then the second factor was that at that point, my boyfriend, my partner, he was actually being sent to Thailand to work. So he asked me, hey, why don't you come along? I said, oh, okay, that's kind of scary, but sure. So I think the opportunity that I saw there was that by moving to Thailand, it would actually dramatically reduce my cost of living. In Singapore, I was renting. Being in Thailand meant I wasn't paying rent. I could live on a lot less. And that funding from that grant actually allowed me to give myself some kind of pocket money while I was trying to figure out what the heck <laughs> Collective was. I think just having that six months to cover myself as a founder or to figure out our business model actually provided that safety net to doing it full-time. And during that six months, we figured it out. What is it to figure it out? Because so much mental health resources, right? So maybe folks are aware of depression. People know there's therapy these days. People on YouTube and TikTok are talking about it. So how did you go about thinking through what you wanted to build? It's really interesting because from the outset, I wasn't sure that I was going to be building a business. A lot of the first year of Calm Collective was very organic, right? So I think having that, having my day job actually de-risked everything. So the first business opportunity that came along was actually in the form of event sponsorships. So we were creating webinars before it became boring. During the lockdown, we started off doing webinars on a regular basis to educate the community and to share practical strategies around coping in the lockdown. And then we actually had our first event sponsorship come along. And that was when I was like, hey, wait a minute, can we make money from this? That kept coming. We just had other companies and also like government organizations notice our work and they came forward and said, hey, mental health is really important right now. We want to do something about this. Can we sponsor something? Can you do something with us? That was the first version of our business model to be an event 
or like content creation agency of sorts, whatever you want to call it. And we just created these webinars and created these illustrations of socials and things like that where they were co-branded. And then during the six months where I was, I left my job and and was trying this thing full time, the second business model came up, or a second revenue stream came up whereby companies started taking notice as well. And they came forward and they said, hey, can you organize a talk or a training around mental health for our team members? So this would normally come from like HR or employee engagement. So that's kind of actually where we are right now. We, we organically found our business model just by serving this group of working adults who, yeah, just kind of share it collective through word of mouth. What's it like to take something that's like your own personal health condition to obviously being part of the conversation of your friends and network of two suicides and dealing with the grief of that to making that business? I think the first thing that comes to mind as you ask that question is that initially it was very hard to not take things personally whenever I encountered someone who just didn't get it, right? So there were conversations we had uh, with HR folks and whatnot that came forward and said, hey, mental health is important right now, but frankly, I'm just doing this because my boss asked me to do it. And then I would ask them, hey, so what are your thoughts on mental health? And they would just blatantly say that it's not important right now because well, either because it's not really a thing. You can just sleep it off. It's just a, a young person's thing. I would hear things like that. I think initially it was hard not to like get angry or pissed off about it because I'm like, you know what can happen? You can die. <laughs> that would come up <laughs> in my head. So strongly, yeah, if you don't care about it, what's at stake? Your life. Things like that. As I went on, like I think months after that, I, I think I've just learned to not take things too personally and recognize that those kind of comments just fortify my mission even more. It just, yeah, it gives me more reason to do this work, to destigmatize, to educate, to train people, to understand and embrace mental health the way it should. Is the work making it less fun slash interesting? Because, yeah, I think I was got the advice, right, which is never make your hobby into a job because that's how you crush your hobby. I'm just kind of curious, are there any interactions like that where it's like, it's like way too much or way too heavy? Yes and no. So I, I think as you say that, it really brings to mind how I started feeling about DJing before. So I've definitely experienced that. I was like, oh shit, I, I used to enjoy this and now I'm just doing it for work. Boring, not fun anymore. <laughs> On the mental health side of things, it's a little bit different. So what I found is that With mental health, it's really interesting because the more I dig into it, the more I learn how to take care of myself as well. So every talk I host, every, I don't know, every talk I give, every training I attend, I'm just learning more and more. And this just gives me more and more tools and skill sets to take care of myself better. So it's something that I see really contributes to my own personal growth as well as I interact with more people or as I talk about it even more, even with you. But where it becomes not so fun is that because mental health, I find that it's a very tricky topic because it's very sensitive. It's very... Talking about mental health also means that we need, like myself as a professional now in this space, it gives me a lot more pressure to walk the talk. 
So when I'm talking about normalizing mental health conversations, I'm talking about taking care of my mental health or one's mental health, it sometimes gives me a bit more pressure to take care of myself. So when I find myself feeling a bit overwhelmed or burnt out or stressed, I actually beat myself up a little bit because I'm like, Sabrina, you talk about mental health so much. You should know it better. So there are times where I find my mental health suffering for whether it's work reasons or personal reasons. And that's where it gets a bit hard because I've realized that I hold myself to a very high standard because it's quite public in nature to start a mental health company. So I think that's where it gets a little bit less fun. Yeah, Yeah. I guess when you're doing customer success, I guess for a B2B SaaS company, if you have to take a break and you're not working on it, you don't feel like you're letting someone down. You're just saying, okay, the ticket is <laughs> goes on for one additional day. But when you're feeling like you're servicing people who are facing this mental health issue, I can feel like it's hard to knock off. And I think it definitely reminds me of Ikigai, right? Which is about you're trying to do something that you enjoy, but also something that the world values and something that you're good at. And I think one realization I had is makes that very concentric circle overlap Venn diagram into a very, like, very static spot. And I realized over time is people can have mm. multiple sweet spots, right? Maybe you can do something for the money and that you're good at. And maybe mm. there's something else that you really enjoy. And you can do two things, right? Or that spot also moves over time, right? Why you start to do something can be very different from why you continue doing it. So I'm just curious because now you've done this almost yeah. for three years now, right? And obviously you shared about why you started Calm Collective, right? Because of that passion and that interest. But why is it that you continue doing Calm Collective at the three-year mark? Firstly, because I enjoy it. And I think I would probably challenge that idea of enjoyment. I actually find that with enjoyment also comes a bit of suffering. And being able to get through the challenge of it also gives you some enjoyment or some level of satisfaction, right? So I think what keeps me going right now with Calm Collective is that there's a few things. I, I think. Part of it is the subject matter of mental health. The more I dig into it, the more there is to learn. I'm still learning. There's lots to learn. And I think as the founder or as a so-called boss, I think the learning potential is just unlimited. Another part of it is I think the entrepreneurship journey has just been really interesting for me. When I'm working for someone, the parameters are usually a lot more defined. But as an entrepreneur, I... And putting myself in a situation to where I have to really navigate uncertainty. I have to navigate a lot of things I never thought I would have had to bother about, like cash flows, people management, learning how to manage our volunteer team, working on partnerships with the government, other corporates, other nonprofits. So I think that part of it keeps me going because it's been intellectually very stimulating. <laughs> what are some myths or misconceptions about? building a mental wellness business? Yeah, so, so I think there are two parts to it, right? So on the mental health side and also the business side, but a mental wellness or mental health business, I think one of the misconceptions, or I'm not sure if it's a misconception, but one of the things that people may not think about when they're building a company within the mental health space is that who's going to pay for it? Right? A lot of the time, health in general is seen as a public good. We're very used to having the government pay for our physical health needs, or at least having that option. And for 
us being able to claim from insurance providers, right? But in this part of the world, mental health is still, I guess, underfunded from the public perspective as well as both public and private perspectives. So, so one of the big challenges in building a mental health business is that where is the funding going to come from? A lot of the time, not just with us, but with other peers in the mental health space, a lot of the funding has had to come from corporates, from big companies who already have that mindset towards embracing mental health and also putting the money behind it. So yeah, that's one. So I guess, I, I think one has to start from whether you're building a business that serves B2C or B2B. On the B2C side, I've seen that a lot of business models don't really work yet. Um, a lot of the time, the B2C stuff has had to become B2B in order to actually make money because there are a lot of free apps out there, for example, that serve B2C. Insight Timer is an amazing one that is free that I use that's actually really, really well designed. It's hard to make money on the B2C side. And if you are doing B2C, then funding has to probably come from the government or someone with very deep pockets, maybe foundations and stuff like that. On the B2B side, the misconceptions would be you might build something, but who are you going to sell it to? So uh, as I mentioned, what I've seen is that usually it's the big MNCs, not all big MNCs, so the ones who are like more forward thinking, that are confident enough to put that money behind it and see the point of mental health and have a champion internally. So I think the misconception there is that HR leaders or senior leaders in big companies are ready to put their money behind mental health. It's not something that's there yet. And what would you say has been a brave chapter in your life? I'm in my brave chapter right now. <laughs> I'm living it. <laughs> so depends on the book you're reading. The chapter could be short or long. But I think one of the brave chapters I've faced is really to make that leap, going from being employed to doing this full-time, to doing Calm Collective full-time. And then to now employing people. Yeah. Why is it brave? People build businesses all the time, hire people all the time, and you're part of those teams. So why is that brave to you? I think the personal significance of that in making those moves from going full-time to now building the team, it basically meant that I was taking on more responsibility. And typically with more responsibility, that means also more stress. And with some and I guess Coming from a place where I had to actually minimize my stress, especially with managing bipolar disorder, that was definitely a big move for me because it meant that I was testing my own threshold to manage stress and also giving myself the opportunity to make a, an impact beyond my own life. So yeah, I, I think it's that combination of challenging myself and also bringing that impact to more people. I mean, actually, that's true, right? Because by actually choosing to build something, you're taking on more stress, right? More fear, more uncertainty, more longer days, right? And it never stops. And then you got yeah, to take care of people, employees, contractors, <laughs> partnerships, all this stuff, right? So how do you manage, I guess? How do you handle it all? Because, you know, I mean, everybody knows that being a founder is tough, right? Everybody knows that being a founder yeah. is stressful and everybody knows that being a founder is no guarantee of success. Yeah. And you know that you have this Death Star vulnerability, I guess, 
So how do you, I guess, mm. manage that psychology? What's interesting is that the past, you know, since I started doing this, a lot of entrepreneurs have come forward and said, Hey, Sabrina, how do you manage? I'm struggling too. And it's, yeah, it's not a secret that entrepreneurs, whatever support system you have, it's still, it's really hard. It's the way that I manage it is that I really had to lead with compassion for especially for myself yeah I, I think I've just had to make sure that I could I need to make sure that I'm kind to myself especially when things don't go our way yeah when things don't go our way on a day-to-day basis what I do is that I try to make sure that I schedule regular breaks like breaks can be in the form of just a few minutes going for a short walk or meditating showering I think just being very clear about what my self-care systems look like as well as support systems when the going get stuff has been very important for me so one of the things that I have done for myself is that I built out a whole Trello board to remind myself that okay Sabrina these are the things that you can do when you have high energy go for a run or whatever versus what can you do when you have low energy these are the people that you can talk to and rent to these are things that can make me happier. Giving myself a McDonald's treat once in a while, but not every day. <laughs> so things like that. I, I think just being very clear about what my support systems are and what I can do when I'm facing different types of challenges or when I have different energy levels has been very helpful in managing my mental health on a day-to-day basis. Practicing self-compassion when things don't go right. Just saying that, Sabrina, it's okay. Speaking to myself as I would to a friend has been very important, I think. As an entrepreneur or as a person who's like leading this thing, this calm collective thing, I feel that a lot of the time that when things don't go the right way, it's my fault when actually maybe it's not, right? So yeah, just being able to get that perspective um, yeah, once in a while helps a lot. And also therapy. I go for therapy. I go for coaching which also helps kind of reset. It's a fair point, right? Would you say that lots of founders actually talk to you and say, hey, they're handling their stress. So what advice would you give to founders who are stressed out? And they should be stressed out, right? The odds say is one in 40. You think it's one in two chance. You're dealing with the stress of all these different things and hearing a lot of bad news. So how would you advise founders to handle that stress? I think what helps a lot is to have trusted people that you can speak to about it. Just being able to recognize that you're not alone in this is very important. That, that can look like, that can look different for every person. So maybe it's about talking to your partner, co-founder. It could be someone you can talk to who's your advisor or mentor. It could be a therapist or a coach. It could be some friends. But I think what's very important is to be able to proactively seek out people that you can speak to whom you feel safe enough with whom you feel can help you find that clarity amidst that chaos so i think it's really important to continue to seek those people out if you don't have one or two people to talk to thank you so much for sharing and could you share what was the i guess worst moment of your life versus the best moment in your life well i think the worst moment of my life definitely was getting arrested for that suicide attempt. It's very, very embarrassing. I was overcome by shame. I think shame was like the biggest one. Being arrested, missing my DJ gig that night <laughs> and missing a work trip as well. That really felt horrible. And also having, I think, friends not 
understand what really happened, getting judged for it is just very incredibly isolating. So I think the combination of shame and isolation is something that was probably one of my worst moments. In contrast, oh, there are many best moments. I tend not to get too attached to best moments because I'm always slightly pessimistic while also being a bit optimistic. <laughs> so I, I guess best moments is frankly like, yeah, just being able to live every new day and recognize that. So there's this quote or this line from this John Mayer song called No Such Thing. <laughs> and that line is, I'm invincible as long as I'm alive. So, yeah, for me, best moments, like, the best is yet to be also if you're an ACS person. <laughs> I'm not, but I find that hard to answer. I think there have been some best moments and some of the ones that have happened recently include signing on Spotify as a global partner. We also recently got a grant from the National Youth Fund to scale up our peer support program so that we can train more people to take care of themselves and each other better. And yeah, and building the team of just really passionate people to help further this cause has just been very meaningful. So lots of best moments. And I think there should be more to come as long as I, I stay that. alive. Could you share a little bit more about what it like to be arrested for suicide? So being arrested for suicide. So this is... So okay, right now, as of I think 2018 sometime, suicide and attempted suicide is no longer a crime in Singapore. But back then, in when was that? 2016 it was. What that was like was that when I got off the ledge, so I was on the 20th floor of a building and this film crew actually saw me up there for a long time. I don't know how long because I didn't bring my phone with me, but basically they called the police and then they came. And when they came, I was like, ah, I don't want to be, I don't want to be killing myself like this. It's very embarrassing. <laughs> so when I got off the ledge, the police officer said, so were you trying to kill yourself? Are you depressed? I said, yeah. And then the guy said, well, sorry, now that you've said that you're depressed and you wanted to kill yourself, we have to arrest you. So that was just really unfortunate because I didn't realize that was, that was a crime back then. If I knew, I would have said something else. I was just pondering life up there. So then they threw me into the cell. I mean, they didn't throw me, but basically I had a little tour of the police station, went to a cell where there was no door for the toilet and there was no toilet paper. So I just had to pee messily <laughs> and then I got brought into another cell where there were lots of illegal overstayers from the karaoke bars nearby made some friends there as well most of them were from Vietnam or China and then after that they said okay we need to send you for a psychiatric assessment and then it was just a whole like night of being sent from one place to another and the whole time I was handcuffed Right, and that's not fun because it's a bit tight and yeah, it left a bruise. But um, yeah, basically, it was just one night of being in jail and then being at the Institute of Mental Health in Singapore. But basically, you're treated like a criminal throughout. So that obviously made me feel really, what the heck, did I just do something wrong? This is just really embarrassing to, to have gone through all of this. It just doesn't help a person who's mentally struggling at all. I'm just really happy that it's now decriminalized and uh, yeah, and hopefully no one else has to go through. Wow, I had no idea. And yeah, when you put it that way... Oh, wait, I need to say something. I need to... So I'm not a criminal. <laughs> I got let off with a warning. So my records are clean. Like... So... 
You put it it's out funny. there. I had to put it out like, there. <laughs> you imagine you're like, you have a criminal why? Because I wanted to commit suicide. That's, I know. that's terrible. Yeah, I know. It's like the lamest excuse for being in jail. <laughs> like, oh. I wish I was like, I don't know. Yeah, I, like if people ask me, have you ever been arrested? Yeah, for what? Starting a protest or something would be cooler. Yeah. No, uh, I'm glad you're right. It's great to be decriminalized. Because like you said, the police... <laughs> officer in such a bad position as well because the last thing you want to say is please don't commit suicide and I will arrest you. <laughs> like that's probably quite contradictory yeah, because of messaging, right? you know. I know. Exactly. And it's not the guy's fault either, right? He's just doing his job. So I, I was like, I can't be angry with it. I can't be angry about this because it's, it's just like that law, right? Experience. Yeah, and I think folks, like you said, you mentioned your friends had two suicides and obviously you yourself were considering it. Is there any advice for people who are considering suicide? I mean, don't do it. <laughs> what does it mean to don't do it? Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I know. Sorry, I, mean, I don't want to trivialize it because I've been there before. <laughs> Honestly, I think it boils down to patience and perseverance. Because when you want to kill yourself, it just feels like all hope is gone and that's the only way out. You know, you, you may not want to actually kill yourself or end your life, but you just want to end the way things are right now. And oftentimes it's something that you can't run away from because it's all in your head, right? You can't just like, okay, I want to perform surgery on my brain right now. And oftentimes people don't even realize that it's something to do with your brain or your chemicals. or it's, you, People don't know that it's something that you can do something about. So when I say patience and perseverance, what I mean is that I think it's really about recognizing that there are ways to get help and there are ways to improve your current state wherever you are. And oftentimes that actually looks like seeking help. And what that means is seeking help that actually helps you, right? So what might work for someone may not work for you. So for me, what helped was that it was a combination of getting on the medication, which actually enabled me to be in a better state of mind to be more open to therapy. And therapy actually helped me find my additional like support systems uh, from exercise to reframing my thoughts to journaling, things like that. So it's a combination of things. And I think we just have to be really patient and just persevere to figure out the right combination that works for ourselves. There are also things that didn't work for me along the way. There were a few times that where my bosses at that time said, Sabrina, come to church with me, but I'm Muslim. So it didn't work. I am not, not very actively practicing, but still it was difficult to buy in. And then, yeah, someone brought me to like Muay Thai and I'm like, I just don't want to hit people. <laughs> it's not going to work. <laughs> so so I, I think, yeah, just really being patient and finding the right combination, being able to research and try things out because sometimes it just has to get worse before it gets better as well for me with therapy with medication medication will have some side effects you just have to find the right combination of medication that could help you and even with therapy when you are going through therapy you're encouraged to face your your trauma and all that shit and you're just going to feel even worse for a while so yeah i think it's really just persisting being patient about it and in singlish terms just tahan you just gotta yeah i just gotta yeah keep going yeah thank you so much for your advice on that note i'd love to uh summarize i think the three big takeaways i got from this conversation the first 
is thank you so much for sharing about what's it like to be diagnosed and to be living with bipolar and also explaining what bipolar is for so many folks. And also sharing, I think, your personal journey about what was it like to attempt suicide and to be arrested for it. And I think a lot of the conversations around how you also saw, I think, the ripple effects of suicide and mental issues in your own personal community and friendships. So I thought it was a really personal journey that I think very few folks get to hear. And thank you so much for being open about it. So thank you so much. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you for uh, the second this is thank you so much for sharing about your passion and obviously about this as a result and how you transform, I think, your own personal pain into something that was a passion, more other oriented, and then eventually to making this a business and startup. So I thought it was an interesting step by step dynamic where you walk us through, I think, that um, transformation, but also that evolution and how you achieve some level of product market fit, but also being thoughtful about the revenue sources and possibilities there. The third thing I think was also your advice around for folks about if you're a founder, how to manage your stress, but also I think it's more generalizable to everybody else, right? So encouraging folks to find treatment that really works for them personally mm. and seeing that there's hope during the worst of times. And if you're thinking about doing it, don't do it. So I think it's totally fair advice. So thank you so much for sharing, Sabrina. Thank you so much. It was a really great chat and you helped me put things into perspective as well. So thank you. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyow.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave. Stay brave.